From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, the party should unite behind the person who wins the vote, and we need a Speaker of the House. Georgia Congressman Austin Scott has a brief moment in the national spotlight in his surprise bid to become the GOP candidate for Speaker of the House. We'll look at the frustration that led to his challenge of the eventual winner, Jim Jordan. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. Now that Jim Jordan is the nominee, the question is, does he have the votes he needs to win the gavel? I'm Greg Bluestein. Governor Brian Kemp says he's focused on 2024, but is he already making moves for 2026? I'm Patricia Murphy. Georgia lawmakers are crafting their positions on the war in the Middle East. We explain why there's a divide between some lawmakers and how it could intensify. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. All right, Greg and Patricia, for people who don't see us, since we are, in fact, doing a podcast, you are sitting on opposite sides of the studio table. Greg Bluestein, your Bulldogs, took on (laughs) Patricia's Commodores of Vanderbilt on Saturday and Patricia, the Commodores did a lot better than I think people like Bluestein would have liked, even though they lost. They did exactly as well as people like I thought they would. Um, Vanderbilt plays a mean three quarters of football, and anybody who doesn't believe that should think twice. The fourth quarter is a little bit tricky, Not so much. and we're working on that. <laughs> I got to be honest, I forgot about the game. I thought it was starting at 3.30, not noon. Oh, I was in front of that TV. I was I was at synagogue, and I was coming back home, and I, and I, and I, got a, I looked at my phone, and I got all these panicked text from Bulldog fans. And at that point, I turned on the game on the radio. We were down, I think, 7 nothing, And that's when I texted you, meh. Uh, some bad turnovers for the Bulldogs in the first half. Very Another characteristic slow start. That has been the, uh, the problem that's plagued the entire season. But guess what? Still number one in the country. Yeah, yeah. Still undefeated. Yeah. It's also known as a strong start by Vanderbilt. And we'll see you for the golf championships nice. <laughs> where we excel. We'll see you there at the links. See, yeah. and I, I am such an odd person out in this conversation because for me, what this weekend was about was the Premier League wasn't playing because it's an international break. So I, I watch soccer. And I have to say, though, that I cannot stop watching UGA football because, for the most part, they're such an extraordinary team to watch play. And we're all thinking about Brock Bowers right now, who went down with an ankle injury. We hope he's back sometime this season, but we'll find out pretty soon. Okay. All right, enough talk about sports. We're ready to talk politics. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. 
Let's get started um, with our top story today. Um, for most of the last week, um, 8th District Congressman Austin Scott uh, was showed his frustration about uh, the inability of Republicans in the House to come together to elect a speaker. And so on Friday, he decided to do something about it. Out of nowhere, he declared himself a candidate for Speaker of the House, um, kind of upsetting what Jim Jordan had hoped would be a clearer path to the uh, Republican nomination. Um, he lost, but surprisingly enough, he gathered quite a few votes considering he didn't have time to uh, put together much of a campaign, to make phone calls, to get out there and, and whip up votes uh, from his um, uh, colleagues who supported him. Um, Tia Mitchell, um, we're going to bring you into the conversation, but you spent some time talking to Austin Scott about this. And, and as we start, why don't we listen to one of the things he told you about this last minute decision to become a candidate? Yeah, so uh, at 11:59, I, I told him if nobody else is challenging, then I'm gonna I'm gonna run, so that we can have an honest debate about, about different issues and things that needed to be sorted out. I think we had that debate. Jim Jordan won, and so I, it, I, I didn't have prep time or, or a whip list or make phone calls asking for support. My own my, my del I never even told the Georgia delegation I was running because I didn't have time. I was, I was just trying to get I, I I was honestly trying to get in touch with my wife who's work and so uh making sure that she knew and didn't didn't see it uh she said go for it Uh, tia talk to us about austin scott who's always had a pretty low-key presence up there on the hill talk to us about this transformation into candidate for speaker yeah, it was quite interesting because for me, as someone who focuses on the Georgia delegation, I talk to Austin Scott all the time. So, you know, it's almost like I take for granted that like, oh, yeah, people aren't paying attention to the Georgia congressman from Tifton the way I am. And so when the news broke that he was going to challenge Jim Jordan for speaker, I don't want to say it was a token race, but I think it was a long shot. Everyone knew that Jim Jordan was likely to win. But again, as you said, Bill, he wanted to create a competition and not just have one name on the ballot. And immediately all the journalists in the press corps, which, as you've heard from Patricia and I, over 100 are there staking out the speaker's race. And one by one, not all 100, of course, but people were coming to me saying, Tia, what do you know about Austin Scott? Tia, tell me about Austin Scott. Where does Austin Scott come from? What part of Georgia? So there was all this interest in him, of course, because people are trying to explain who this guy is. A lot of them were like, if Austin Scott walked past me, I wouldn't know who he was. You know, he's just a very low, 435 members of the House. He wasn't in leadership, wasn't as prominent. But of course, me, Georgia, he's one of my favorites. So it was interesting to see this this quick rise to prominence. And then almost as quickly it was over. He mentioned that at 1159, he decided he was running for speaker. That's when they took a lunch break. They came back at 130. So that's to put the context of he had a little bit over an hour to like get it together and um, and then he went in there. Everyone said he did great. They had a candidate for him. He answered questions. He talked about his vision as speaker. And even there were some members of the Georgia delegation that had publicly said they were going to support Jim Jordan even before, you know, before Austin Scott became a thing. And they said, I'm not changing my vote, but Austin Scott did great. 
Patricia, we should point out that it isn't as if Austin Scott isn't a known quantity in his home district. He's been in Congress since 2010. He's a senior member of the delegation. So so people know him. Just because he's low-key doesn't mean he isn't an important member of the U.S. House. Um, but throughout last week, he was very blunt in his criticism, public criticisms of the Republicans' inability to elect a speaker extremely blunt, said that this entire fiasco is, quote, making us look like a bunch of idiots. Um, And I would say almost every member of that caucus agreed. They were very upset with how it was going down. And he was among the most upset stepping out and talking to national media when he typically doesn't do that. So we knew that he was already in an agitated state of mind. What I think we still have not heard from Austin Scott is why specifically he wanted to challenge mm-hmm. Jordan. He has said, well, we had that debate. Now I'm lining up behind Jim Jordan. He had said but previously he would never vote for Jim mm-hmm. Jordan for speaker. So what were those objections? We do know that there is a group of members of the House Armed Services Committee and the House Appropriations Committees who do oppose Jordan. And so uh, Austin Scott is a senior member of the House Armed Services Committee. All the way back to January, Jim Jordan had said, Uh, We need to cut spending across the board and defense should be on the table. Um, Now, that is something that those members of both of those committees were very, very worried about. Um, Jordan hasn't spoken specifically about what cuts he would like to see to defense spending, but it's been on his mind um, for some time. And so you can see where that those particular two coalitions would come up against Jim Jordan. Um, there are other members who, when we were, when I was up there last week, and T was talking to them too, very upset that Jim Jordan did not give his full um, support to Steve Scalise, uh, other than saying, "I will endorse you if once you lose, you will endorse me." Um, so they felt like he was not playing by the rules they wanted him to to see him play by. And now that now that they're in this next chapter, they want him to live up to the rules that he's been insisting on all along. It's so fascinating because, as Tia mentioned, Austin Scott's hardly known to the Capitol Press Corps, let alone a known quantity in Washington or, frankly, outside of his district Mm -hmm. in Georgia, right? I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find many Metro Atlantans who could tell you much about Austin Scott. But he is such a fascinating political figure who was at the white-hot center of the spotlight for just a few hours, but still there in Georgia. You know, way back when, when he was a 20-something-year-old lawmaker, he was one of the youngest elected officials in Georgia uh, as a Republican official, he beat a Democratic incumbent at the time when Democrats ruled the rural South, the Georgia areas. Um, he was a maverick, though. You know, I remember covering him uh, later on in his legislative career in Georgia, but earlier on, he was the only Republican to side with then Democratic Governor Roy Barnes' uh, legislative push to minimize the rebel emblem, the Confederate emblem on the state flag. Uh, he'd buck his party line, he'd go against his party line. Uh, every so often, he was known as a, someone with an independent streak. And certainly when he got up to, uh, before he got up to Washington, when he ran for governor against several far, far better known Republican figures and launched his bid on a thousand mile plus walk uh-huh. around the states, uh, he would exhibit that trait. Yeah, it's fascinating to you that even though he was a candidate for a uh, governor, as Greg started his uh, comments by saying, he's still not particularly well known across the state of Georgia. But Tia, what's your sense of where this takes Austin Scott next? I mean, he now says he'll support Jim Jordan for speaker. I would think that's an important uh, endorsement for Jordan to have. Does Scott now put himself in a position to be a more prominent member of the Republican conference? 
I think so, because at the end of the day, he's put his name on the map and now people are checking for him in a way they weren't prior to Friday. Um, But I think a lot is going to depend on how this speaker's race unfolds from here. You all mentioned he was he is being very diplomatic about Jim Jordan because I think he doesn't support Jim Jordan from a political standpoint. They don't agree on certain things. But what he's trying to do is model what he thinks the House should be doing, which is rallying around someone who has the majority of the majority. Um, But the kind of the irony here is Jim Jordan didn't want to do that. Jim Jordan, when Steve Scalise was the nominee, said, no, you should have 217 votes within the House GOP before you go to the floor. So the question is, can Jim Jordan stick it out? And if so, I think Austin Scott has earned his respect, but there's no guarantee that the speaker will ultimately be Jim Jordan. Yeah. And so you uh, think about what all of this means in real life uh, to people um, once all of these machinations are are behind us. Um, for somebody like Jim Jordan, um, he has long been a skeptic of funding for Ukraine, uh, very, very favorable toward funding for Israel. But if you have a speaker, Jim Jordan, um, you could see funding for Ukraine be a real sticking point. And that's when it becomes something more than just a personality contest or a popularity contest. It becomes something a lot more specific and existential to some of these members. And I think that a more consensus candidate, people would be happier to have a consensus behind. Um, But Jim Jordan is somebody who there are a lot of very strong feelings about. So I could see a group of members saying we should have a we should we should seek consensus around a speaker candidate just as. Austin Scott is doing right now and modeling, as Tia pointed out so rightly. Um, and I could see them saying, for everybody except Jim Jordan. I could see this really going down to the wire and then them needing to look for an entire new path, including potentially reaching out to some moderate Democrats. Um, well, that's what I was going to uh, ask you about very quickly, Tia, because I know you have to leave us in just a moment. Um, Hakeem Jeffries, a leader of Democrats in the House, sort of suggested that it's possible that uh, there could be some accommodation made between Republicans and Democrats, as Patricia kind of pointed to, that would allow Democrats to uh, support and put a, a candidate for speaker in the majority, add votes to whoever the Republicans eventually end up with. Although it's kind of hard to see it, Democrats voting for Jim Jordan, uh, Tia. Yeah, I think that right now Republicans, not enough Republicans have gotten desperate enough to really take seriously the prospect of some type of unity candidate. Um, But I think there are many Republicans who are uncomfortable with the prospect of Jim Jordan being speaker. The question is, will they stay strong if he brings it to the floor for a vote, which will put them on the record opposing someone who has the support of President Trump and the support of the conservative base in the party. So if Jim Jordan can't do it in a in a round or two, maybe Hakeem Jeffries and working with Democrats becomes even bigger of a discussion. But 
um, I think it's too early to say. All right. Well, Tia, we know you've got your work cut out for you up there again this week. Uh, Republicans are meeting in private. I think again today, tomorrow, we expect there would be could be a vote on the floor. So I know you have to leave us early, but obviously throughout this week, we'll be looking to you for your uh, uh, observations about what's happening on your beat on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much for joining us for a portion of Politically Georgia today, Tia. Um, All right. Bye-bye. See ya. A pickup on on this, uh, uh, Greg, this notion of moderate Demo- of Democrats joining uh, with moderate, more moderate Republicans to elect a speaker. Yeah, I think there's a couple things at play here. First, there's the Republican uh, reaction to blame Democrats for their own crises. Right, this is a Republican made crisis. Uh, Democrats with a with a similarly narrow mar- margin were able to elect Nancy Pelosi. Right, uh, she was able to coalesce, consolidate her coalition without having uh, Democrats back a splinter faction and in the same sort of crisis just a few years ago, she was able to avoid. Um, But also, I think there's a lot of rhetoric. There's a lot of talk right now from Kevin McCarthy supporters that there could be a comeback bid from him uh, with Democratic support. And I don't see any sign whatsoever. Patricia, to chime in here because you you've talked to them, too, but I don't see any sign of that happening. Uh, They they there is no love lost between Democrats and Kevin McCarthy. Absolutely not. I think the days of Kevin McCarthy as speaker are now in the history books. Um, There is also talk about uh, empowering Patrick McHenry, who's the current uh, speaker pro tem, to have more authority to do important things like move legislation, including potential aid for Israel. Right now, any potential aid for Israel is completely frozen, paralyzed, just as the House is. So something needs to give here. And if there is a group of moderate Republicans who are absolutely hard-nosed on Jim Jordan, and they feel like it's now their turn to flex their muscles, just as the far right did with their group of eight. There is at least a group of eight of Jim Jordan right now um, who are not going to let that happen either. Jim Jordan has never hesitated to flex his muscles and, and be a tough, tough member um, right now, he's leading the investigation of uh, trying to prove that uh, President Biden and his son Hunter are a part of a corrupt uh, uh, family. Um, there are lots of ways. He's, a, he's certainly a member of the far right in the Republican Party. And here's what's interesting, I think, about that, Patricia. We know now that um, Jim Jordan supporters are uh, out there putting pressure on some of the more moderate Republicans, some of those who are not eager to vote for Jim Jordan, threatening that they'll come into those districts and challenge those incumbents who are not proving their conservative credentials by voting for Jordan. And there are those who think that's a really bad strategy. Well, they think it's a bad strategy because it's very unlikely to move many people. I do think there's a really important factor factor here, which is the Trump factor. Um, Jim Jordan is very closely aligned with Donald Trump. Sean Hannity has now gotten into the mix to start to say you need to call your members, your Republican members. Um, Andrew Clyde has said the American people want Jim Jordan. I think that the jury is still out on that one. But they're doing everything they can to to move this conservative pressure campaign. But we just saw here in in Georgia, that's not a sure thing. We just saw somebody um, uh, like... uh, Colton Moore uh, tried to do the exact use the exact same tactics, use Donald Trump's popularity in, in Georgia to pressure his own Republican colleagues. And it just didn't move the needle a bit. We may be seeing the end of the effectiveness of that kind of strategy, um, particularly among these members who said, look, you guys just did the exact same thing. You far right guys 
we're going to stay strong on this. By the way, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is certainly in the Jordan camp, uh, Greg. And it's interesting that she the other day was pretty outspoken in terms of her criticism of Austin Scott deciding to run at the last minute. She essentially uh, 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 derided him by saying, if you were really serious about this, you would have really put something together ahead of time. I don't have her exact quote in front of me, but she ridiculed his last minute effort to become speaker. And that's when you knew it was doomed from the get go. Right. When when members of your own Georgia House Republican delegation don't don't side with you, you know, your effort is doomed. And as we heard from Tia's great interview with Congressman Scott, uh, he did. He felt like he didn't even have time to tell his own delegation. He barely had time to tell his wife that he was going to run for the one of the most important jobs in American politics. So before we take a break, I, I asked Tia this question, but I'd love to hear the two of you uh, react. Does this, uh, Greg, give Austin Scott some new status in the Republican-run House, as far as you can tell? Maybe he got some concessions. Look, he's still got dozens and dozens of votes. This was not a blowout. Yeah. He's still got a significant number of, of of Republican votes in that closed-door meeting. This is also, we're talking about someone who has never lacked for ambition. He might not be a household name, but Austin Scott, someone who ran for governor as a very little-known state lawmaker <clears throat> way back in 2019, 2020, dropped out, beat Jim Marshall, mm-hmm. an incumbent Democratic congressman from middle Georgia, a very powerful Democrat, and has risen through the ranks. He's now the senior most Republican member of the Georgia House mm-hmm. Republican delegation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think this absolutely, first of all, pops his name up to <clears throat> national recognition, which he never had before. And it also shows, um, to Greg's point, that strain of ambition that we've always known about. Um, 81 congressmen said, we do not want to vote for Jim Jordan. Somebody's got to do something. And he stepped forward. This is just a an instinct at this point. This is a reflex on his part. This was not that out. I was like, I'll do it. I will do it. And he did. Uh, but now getting behind Jim Jordan is what Jim Jordan wants him to do. Taking one for the team is what the team wanted him to do. And so I think it absolutely positions him for the future. All right. Patricia Murphy, Greg Bluestein, and I will be back uh, in just a moment with more. We're going to take a look at Governor Kemp, who once again, Uh, stepped into the national spotlight over the weekend. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. We think that the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. Join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. You'll get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. You will always know what's really going on. Greg Bluestein, uh, this weekend, Governor Kemp, who uh, has already on any number of occasions made it clear that he likes being part of the national political conversation, again this weekend, uh, did just that. He went down to Sea Island, where the NRSC, the National Republican Senate Campaign Committee, was having a, a meeting, and uh, it was private, closed door, but he felt it was important to be there. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, the comment I have from his advisors is the governor and first lady look forward to welcoming the NRSC to Georgia. So not much, but what we do know is that when they came, when Senate Republican leaders, when Mitch McConnell, when the brain trust of the Republican Party aiming to recapture the U.S. Senate 
to GOP hands, came and met. Governor Kemp was there with uh, laying out the welcoming mat. Uh, we also understand that former Senator Kelly Leffler was there. Uh, Burt Jones, the lieutenant governor, who's also been talked about as a potential Senate candidate, was not there. He was coaching his kids football. But we had t- at least two major power players in Georgia who were there. And important thing to remember about Governor Kemp, yes, he's widely seen as someone who could challenge John Ossoff in 2026 when the first-term Democrat is up for re-election. He has not, uh, he has not said he wouldn't. He has not said he would. He said he's focused on 2024. But this is something that Republicans are already game-planning. Many Republicans already expect Governor Kemp to challenge John Ossoff in three years. It's also fascinating to see Brian Kemp continue to really play in national circles, even after he has had this huge falling out with Donald Trump. He's one of the very few Republicans in the country who has gone up against Donald Trump and come out even stronger in many ways, not because of that, but despite that, um, although for many independent and even conservative Democrats we talked to, they did support Brian Kemp because he went up against Donald Trump. So to see the apparatus of the Republican Party come to Georgia with Brian Kemp is a hugely important signal that they really do see Kemp and kind of the Kemp way as a part of the future of Republican politics. And he's been out um, hobnobbing with very large donors around the country. Um, And it's not necessarily for his own run. It could be. um, But it also is a way to sort of continue to add that voice to the national conversation for Republicans. And it shows his both his ongoing and increasing actually clout among national Republicans, but then also the fact that he is so securely reelected here in Georgia that he has the flexibility to do these kinds of events on weekends and um, when the when the uh, House and Senate are not in session here in the state. And remember, guys, I mean, uh, Kemp has close relations, close ties with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Way back when, in the middle of the 2022 campaign, uh, McConnell uh, threw a fundraiser for Governor Kemp, and he became one of the only state figures, not Senate candidates, but state figures that McConnell uh, threw a fundraiser for when he, when, he, when he helped Brian Kemp out. It's the question I get, though, all the time. I mean, this morning I was speaking to a group of community leaders and, and the, I think it was the second question out of the gate was, well, can Brian Kemp beat John Ossoff in 2026? And what I always tell folks is it's a long way away. A, we don't even know if Kemp is going to run. But B, it's so far out, three years out. When you look at the 2020 election, what was the dominant theme we thought would be in 2020 at the start of 2020? Impeachment of Donald Trump. And it, of course, it, it ended up being anything but that with the pandemic and, and the push for racial equality and, and social justice. Um, but a lot depends, of course, on who wins the presidential election next year. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's also important to remember that these conversations probably sound a lot less like Brian Kemp saying, oh, I sure would like to run for Senate. It is most likely these national Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, saying we need you to run for Senate. Mm-hmm. He is their top tier first choice candidate to run statewide again because he's done so so successfully. He can raise gobs of money. He's only met more big donors since he won. Um, they know that he would be his strongest candidate, their strongest candidate against John Ossoff. So a lot of this is about convincing Brian Kemp to take that step ultimately as well. One of the interesting points about this, and you both have referred to this, is obviously Kemp is term limited. He can't run for governor again, um, but he does perhaps have ambitions to run for Senate. So the fact that he does get to travel around the country at this point says a lot about his security in terms of remaining the most popular elected official, essentially, in the state of Georgia. He is... um, 
I can't remember what the last AJC poll showed, but he's way, way over 50 percent in terms of approval ratings, Patricia. Yeah, he's up around 60 percent, actually. Yeah. Um, so very, very securely reelected. He's not just traveling around the country. He's traveling around the world. Yeah. Since he was reelected, he has been to Paris for the Paris Air Show. He's been to Switzerland for the Davos Economic Forum. He's been to Korea to continue to um, woo Korean companies to come here to Georgia and put their plants here and continue to build out their manufacturing. So in the old days, if there was a Republican governor or any governor really who was under the microscope, they're not going to Paris on what would be seen as a boondoggle. (laughs) He's able to say, hey, this is just more of the Kemp, the Kemp way. I'm going to come back and bring thousands of jobs back. And he's gotten really zero pushback on those those types of trips. People see the benefit because he's really delivered the jobs that he said he would. And of course, he went to Israel in May. Uh, what, what, what he said way back when, when he was running for office, that would be his first trip. It ended up being delayed because of the pandemic, uh, but, but another important trip he, he, he made. But look, we live in a weird Republican world right now in Georgia where, where Brian Kemp is unquestionably the most popular Republican figure in Georgia, according to polls and according to election results and you name it. Right. Polls, the AJC's done polls, other outlets have done. But at the same time, Donald Trump, uh, the, 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 the former president who who vowed to defeat and oust Brian Kemp from office is also leading the Republican primary in Georgia with 56 percent of the vote in the last uh, in the last AJC poll. So we have we, we, there is an overlap between yeah. those who love Donald Trump and those who love Brian Kemp. And it also raises the question here in Georgia. Yes, we know Brian Kemp is popular. That, that's been established. But what comes next? What follows Brian Kemp um, for Republicans? Is it more of the Brian Kemp mold of a business-focused chamber of commerce, extremely conservative, but not Trump camp? Or is it hardcore Trump? You know, Republicans in the state have a big decision to make. They're going to have plenty of opportunity to make that, we're already hearing lots of names, including potentially Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who's been chatting about this uh, lately, or not chatting about it, rather. Um, so they'll have lots of opportunities. But we, as a press corps, that's our question. Not just what does Brian Kemp do next, but what do Republicans in this state do next? That's probably the even more important question. So um, why don't we talk about Brad Raffensperger, who, ha- as you point out, Patricia, has been <laughs> traveling around uh, the state speaking. He he has avoided answering questions about whether he'd like to run for governor next time around. Um, although, uh, in fact, what he has been doing is reminding or, or stating the case that the 2020 election was not stolen. Here we are three years later, and you still have to make uh, that case. But it's important in Republican circles because Republicans here uh, by a majority, still believe the election was stolen, and they may hold Brad Raffensperger accountable for not doing something about that. Well, they already hold him accountable for a lot of things. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it would just be on the pile of things that Republicans blame him for. It's important to him as Secretary of State to leave people's confidence in the elections as strong as it was going into it, which was never 100%, but it's taken a huge hit since the 2020 elections. Mm-hmm. Our own polling tells us that the biggest weaknesses in voter confidence are in the Republican Party because of Donald Trump. So Brad Raffensperger sees it as his charge to go around and do something about that. And he says, let me just tell you the facts. Republican voters did not come out 
after the 2020 elections and far fewer Republicans voted for Donald Trump than voted further down the ballot. And so he goes through all of these facts. He continues to get questions. What about all the dead people who voted? What about all the people who aren't from Georgia who voted? He goes through that and says, no, that that is not accurate. Let me give you the facts. But he continues to see, as do we, that there is just a persistent belief among Donald Trump voters that the election was stolen, which it was not. But it's because Donald Trump keeps saying it. And Brad Raffensperger believes it's his responsibility to do something about that. Also, as somebody who may run again statewide, he needs those voters to believe that those that that the ballots are going to be accurate and that the voting machines are reliable. You know, I see this as a new phase of of what Brad Raffensperger did during his reelection campaign. You didn't see him going to grassroots Republican meetings as much as he went to Rotary Club mm-hmm. and uh, Kiwanis Key Club, Kiwanis Clubs, and and civic organizations around the state answering questions from Republicans and Democrats about what happened in the twenty twenty election and what will happen in the 2022 election. And of course, remember, he won that primary against an election denier, former Congressman Jody Heiss, uh, by a significant margin. I think he had in the, well into the 50s um, in the vote. He helped. He was helped by some crossover Democratic vote, but the numbers indicate he would have won without that. Anyway, now as he looks ahead, yeah, he could run for another term as Secretary of State. He could run for U.S. Senate. He could run for governor. But he will face significant obstacles in the Republican Party um, let me put it this way. Governor Kemp won by 52 points over David Perdue. Um, although Raffensperger did beat Jody Heiss, it was not a 52-point romp. Yeah, well, and this is what brings uh, Patricia's observations a little earlier into play here. Is uh, What is the future of the Republican Party, Greg, in Georgia in terms of electing a governor? Are they going to go for a Trump-like figure? Um, you could imagine Burt Jones fitting that category. Or are they going to uh, look for somebody like a Raffensperger who's more in the mold of Kemp in that he's business-oriented, he speaks, he's a conservative, clearly, but speaks with a more moderate voice about the future of Georgia? Well, look, I, I would say if there's a Republican that's even more in the mold of Brian Kemp, it's Attorney General Chris Carr, mm-hmm. who has already let it be known at different gatherings around the state that he does intend to run for governor in 2026, that he's all in. Now, we haven't heard him say that publicly, um, but everything he does right now should be looked at, at least in a, in, a, in a prism of, okay, he's doing this, but he also wants to run for governor one day. He is a very close ally of Governor Kemp, uh, has supported him through and through throughout the, the, well, everything that happened in 2020 and beyond. And of course, he faced his own Trump-backed candidate that he also trounced in the Republican primary last year. And so there is that wing of the party, the more, I guess we can call it the more mainstream Mm. Republican wing, even though back in 2017, 2018, Kemp wouldn't call himself a mainstream Republican. He was running as an outsider. Um, But there's, then there's the Burt Jones. There is the former Senator Kelly Leffler, maybe Herschel Walker wing of the party. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor Greene has floated a potential Senate bid in 2026 as well to our colleague Tia Mitchell. So there is that wing of the party that would truly expose those divisions with the Republican Party yet again. Is it, 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 let me throw something out at you, Patricia, kind of out of nowhere. We're talking a lot about potential Republican candidates. What's a post Abrams, assuming that Abrams has had enough of running for uh, a governor, uh, what's a post Abrams Democratic Party uh, look like in a governor's race? Well, let's be clear. We don't know that it will right. be a post-Abrams yes, that's uh, right. period because Stacey Abrams has never um, discouraged or denied that she could still potentially run. In fact, she has said, I could potentially right. run again for something. And so we we never discount her because she is such 
a huge force in democratic politics here in the state. Um, however, we do know that there are um, multiple other Democrats who have been waiting for their moment once it is no longer Stacey Abrams' race to run. Um, we know somebody, uh, we talk a lot about the mayors here in the state. We talk about Andre Dickens, who has never said that he's interested <laughs> in running, but he's very well liked, particularly outside of Atlanta and even in Atlanta. But he, we hear a lot about him um, out in the suburbs. People say, you know, I really do like Andre Dickens. We do think he would have crossover appeal as a Democrat as well. Somebody like um, Van Johnson, who is up for reelection in Savannah. Um, he is the type of leader in that city who, when you see him um, in the city, when you hear him in media, he sounds like somebody with a lot of potential ahead of them. Um, a lot of leaders. And I always say, you know, there will be, uh, I really believe, somebody kind of a wild card, somebody that we're not talking about right now, a business person, somebody who sees this opening in Georgia politics and in American politics and says, look, we, there has got to be a better way. So we'll you know, I, I always keep my eye out for those candidates. And no. I, do, I do talk to some of those candidates. <laughs> well, look, another name, uh, somebody who really, really suggests that running for governor as part of his future aspirations is Michael Thurman, now CEO of DeKalb County, and somebody who's been in Georgia politics since he was in his 20s, one of the youngest people ever elected to the state legislature out of Athens. And he was a former statewide labor, yes. labor commissioner. So he's won statewide. Michael Thurman, uh, who is term limited, who is not running for another mm -hmm. uh, stint as DeKalb County CEO, is also the former superintendent of the DeKalb County. Um, you know, he's talked about the party reaching out to the middle more. You know, he's someone who had a a different approach than, say, a Stacey Abrams or another Democrat who was, you know, trying to revitalize, energize the liberal core of the party like Stacey Abrams did. Um, he always maintained throughout even that election cycle where Stacey Abrams came within a point and a half of defeating Ryan Kemp. He always advocated for reaching more to the middle. And clearly, we've kind of seen that strategy work in the last election cycle. Uh, I'm not saying that Democrats ignored the base because they certainly didn't at all, you know, and their, and their policies have changed too over the years. But in the last election cycle, we saw a small but significant block of swing voters, independents, former Republicans, you, you name it, vote both for Brian Kemp and for Senator Raphael Warnock. Absolutely. And we've spoken with Democrats who, after Warnock won his race, um, in the same year that Stacey Abrams really struggled to follow up on on her uh, strong showing against Brian Kemp, they really started to say the the Warnock way really needs to be our consideration as well. Not instead of Stacey Abrams kind of go for the base, turn out those uh, low low propensity voters, but Warnock was very very strategic where he went, what he said. It was very clearly a play um, to be an attractive statewide candidate, not just for Democrats, but to appeal to independents. To talk about Ted Cruz, who <laughs> not that popular in Georgia, but it uh, it was his way of showing his bipartisan bona fides and saying, "I will do whatever it takes in this state. Um, I will work with whoever it takes in order to move the state forward." We also have to quickly mention Congresswoman Lucy McBath mm -hmm. as a potential statewide candidate in the future. Um, she is somebody who is so clearly identified with the gun safety issue. She also has tried to flesh out her, I think, her. Um, uh, portfolio into healthcare as well. Um, but if you had to think of a single uh, person here in the state who can raise 
millions of dollars, has a gigantic national network, very well known across the country, particularly on that on that single issue. Um, she's somebody who could mount a campaign very, very quickly. Um, you know, the question is, can voters sort of expand their thinking of Lucy Metbath into somebody who would be an executive rather than a legislator and somebody who has an expertise in multiple issues rather than just one? But if if somebody like a Macbeth was running against a, a more conservative candidate, somebody who's like a Trump candidate, you could see that race getting very interesting very quickly. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. So so um, we mentioned Van Johnson, who's up for re-election in Savannah. At the very top of the show, we pointed out that uh, early voting begins today for municipal elections across the state. November 7th is uh, election day in 2023. And um, it, uh, our colleague Mark Nisi uh, said uh, one of the things he's paying attention to are a number of the races, mayor's races in Brook, Brookhaven, College Park, Lilburn, Stonecrest, just in the metro area, Alpharetta, but they're, they're the mayors running out of post. But we'll, we'll keep on top of some of these races as uh, we move forward. Um, but let's talk a bit about Savannah just briefly, uh, Greg, because um, if Van Johnson intends to be a uh, statewide candidate at some point, he's got to win this election. He's expected as an incumbent that he um, is favored, although there's no polling other than internal polling. His main comp- uh, opponent is a member of the council uh, in Savannah, Keisha Gibson Carter. Um, but we have to remember that Van Johnson got elected in his first race by defeating an incumbent. That's got to be in the back of his mind as he faces this re-election campaign. Exactly. And polling is hard to co- reliable polling is hard to come by. Uh, it, not just in Savannah, but in any mayoral election, it's really hard to poll. We saw this in the Atlanta mayor's race uh, where sort of uh, candidates seen as also Rands, Keisha Lance Bottoms, Andre Dickens, both ended up uh, you know, emerging at the top of the pack by the time the election came uh, finished. This is different, though, because, of course, as you mentioned, um, Van Johnson is an incumbent. Incumbents do get do get defeated. It does happen, especially in Savannah. But um, he, he, I was just down there a few days ago. Um, Van Johnson, his supporters are confident. Of course, they're not letting off the throttle right now. Right now is the time of time where they're kind of doubling down. Uh, he has a big fundraising advantage. He has a lot of endorsements from especially establishment leaders and and corporate leaders and leaders in the civic community. Um, but with a race this volatile, anything could happen. It's interesting, before we leave that, one of the things he's touting in his campaign is his handling of COVID in Savannah. And what's fascinating about that is that he was one of the first major city mayors to shut everything down uh, because he believed that COVID would uh, otherwise really decimate the community. And and that plays well in Democratic politics. It's interesting to think about how it might eventually play in Republican politics. For sure. And remember, he kind of went toe to toe with Governor Kemp and the Republican leadership here in Atlanta over a Savannah mandate for, for masks mm-hmm. during the height of the pandemic. Early, early on, there is a summer of 2020 battle, legal battle uh, and war of words between the governor and Van Johnson. You know, we tend to remember uh, the battle between Keisha Lance Bottoms in Atlanta and, and Governor Kemp, but, but uh, parts of the rest of the state, it's Van Johnson who's the sort of face of that movement. All right. Um, It's going to be fun to watch that race, um, as well as lots of other races. Of course, our colleague Adam Van Brimmer, the bureau chief, AJC bureau chief in Savannah, will be keeping all of us informed about how that race is playing out. Let's do this. Let's get to our final break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Greg Blustein, um, last Friday, we're now recording this podcast on Monday morning. And last Friday, one of the final things we discussed was the way in which the world in Georgia was going to react uh, to images coming out of both Israel and uh, Gaza. And and what we said was that the carnage, the massacre that uh, Hamas uh, inflicted upon Israelis, some Americans and others, kidnapping um, and taking hostage um, many, many people, 191 people, we think now, we, we knew that was going to get world sympathy. But we also said that as Israel uh, uh, embarks on its attacks on Gaza, its efforts to wipe out uh, Hamas, we were going to start seeing a little shift in some people's feelings as they saw civilian fatalities and others in, in uh, Gaza, how they're being affected by the war. And in fact, that split is really apparent in the Georgia legislature right now. Yeah, and I don't know if it's a shift because that might have been the underlying okay. sentiment overall. But I'm sure I'm, you are right, though. There will be a, a shift overall. I think there will be at least some people who have uh, differing viewpoints. But what we've seen, and I think this this was so um, this is so telling because uh, over the weekend I, I heard from both Democratic House members in Georgia and Republican House members. We're talking about the state legislature who had differing statements. There's only one lawmaker who signed both of these statements I'm about to talk about. That's Democratic State Representative Esther Panage, the only Jewish member of the Georgia legislature. Both statements that came out early this morning, uh, they both unequivocally condemn Hamas and the surprise attacks that killed more than 1,300 Israelis. And as you mentioned, um, left, it took another at least 150 hostage. Uh, but then they differ sharply. The, the Republican statement... Uh, details what what they call barbaric slaughter of civilians and endorsed Israel's right to def- self-defense by fighting back against the Hamas ter- terrorists who seek the eradication of the Jewish people. The Democratic statement uh, expressed specifically expressed sympathy and concern for Palestinians too, especially those who could be caught in the retaliatory Israeli strikes against Gaza and are put into a worsening humanitarian crisis uh, that statement said the parties stand united with Israelis and Palestinians and the right to safety, self-determination, and peaceful coexistence. You did not see those words in the Republican statement. Yeah, uh, Patricia, right now, peaceful coexistence is a charged expression, as is the word, by the way, terrorist, which is a word Republicans use in Georgia, but Democrats don't. 
I think some Democrats do. And I think this is where the Democratic Party is really getting into some area where there is not unity in that party. Um, We have uh, President Biden speaking unequivocally on behalf of Israel, but also warning uh, there should be no occupation of Gaza. Um, There should be no loss of innocent life, um, if at all possible, Um, talking about humanitarian aid etc. But the Democratic Party here in the state of Georgia is so fascinating because, as Greg mentioned, the only Jewish member of the state legislature is a Democrat, uh, Esther Panich. Also, the only Palestinian American in the state legislature is also a Democrat. Um, Both first-term lawmakers, both kind of finding their way, neither felt like they would be called upon to start making declarations of international import, but here they are, and they are just coming at it from very, very different viewpoints. The Democratic Caucus is working hard to be a place where both of those can coexist at the same time, but we are finding out right now it's very difficult for those two two viewpoints to coexist at the same time. It's so fascinating to me, therefore, that Esther Panich signed both of those Mm -hmm. statements. She really is sort of charting her own way in this conversation. And I think that, you know, why does this matter Um, politically in an election year? Democrats want to be able to say to Jewish voters, we are the party for you. We are the ones who will defend Israel. Republicans at the same time are saying, no, that's not true. Look at what's happening at the statewide level. So there will be this battle down the road. And it's a very um, kind of cold, calculated political reality, there will be a battle for Jewish voters. And this period of time, what is said, how it's approached, um, who, which group feels like they are getting um, a, a fair shake and, and people representing them and defending them and believing in them and creating space in this country where both of those viewpoints can coexist, uh, you know, that that's what they're going to be looking for. Um, or maybe not coexist, you know. So it's such a sticky territory, but politics are never far from reality in a presidential election year, which is just where we're headed. Yeah. um, President Biden, Greg, has said uh, unequivocally in his mind that at this point, there is no proof that Iran uh, was involved in the Hamas attack on Israel. But we do know that right here in Georgia, There are legislators who are already looking at the next session and saying uh, they will probably want to bring legislation that would ban businesses uh, that are involved with Iran from doing business with the state of Georgia. That's one of the consequences we could see right here in our state. Exactly. And look, those lawmakers know that what President Biden said, um, but also Iran is a sworn enemy of Israel. Mm -hmm. And Iran is the prime benefactor of not just Hamas, but also Hezbollah which is the, uh, the terrorist outfit that's operating in southern Lebanon and has been firing rockets on Israel right now. So that's how they kind of link it. I don't know how much how many Iranian companies actually do business right. with the state right now. It might just be, it might purely be a symbolic uh, issue uh, and another way for lawmakers in Georgia to show, do something small to show support for Israel right now at this very tense time. And remember, as Patricia said just now, it's not just about the fight for Jewish voters. It's also the fight for evangelical voters. What we heard on the show uh, a couple of days ago is State Senator Russ Goodman, evangelical Christian, who put it in very stark terms how he sees Israel. He said that, and I'm just paraphrasing here, but he said the U.S. is blessed to be in a position. He views one of the U.S.'s prime roles as being a benefactor to support the Israeli state. 
And so there's a lot, there, there are a significant number of Christian evangelicals who feel the same way he does. Yeah, that's absolutely uh, an important thing uh, to point out here. One of the things that I noticed over the weekend that continued, Patricia, is some of the Republican candidates for president. Not all of them. I didn't hear all of them. But uh, Nikki Haley, for instance, was on CNN State of the Union on Sunday. And she was very strong in blaming a lot of this on President Biden for showing weakness in world affairs, for having a chaotic approach uh, to uh, uh, many of the issues that uh, uh, are uh, uh, happening worldwide right now. And uh, she got some pushback, but but it strikes me that Republicans who try to blame this on President Biden, it's a hard case for them to really make. Yeah, I kind of expect them all to blame Joe well, Biden, yeah, though, don't course, we? But... You know, I think really interesting what Nikki Haley had to say was um, criticizing Donald Trump. And yes. saying that this is the time for a new generation of Republican leadership. She's using this as a way to finally find a space to put between her and Donald Trump. Donald Trump, uh, unlike Joe Biden, um, has been critical of Benjamin Netanyahu, mm-hmm. has uh, praised the leaders of Hamas as being extremely smart and strategic. Um, and then he would follow up with saying, oh, and of course, this is all terrible. Um, but he really did uh, go into very personal terms about Benjamin Netanyahu specifically because he said Benjamin Netanyahu was trying to take credit for some of the things that Donald Trump did. Kind of very petty, very grievance laden, very typical of what we hear from Donald Trump against people who he's still holding grudges against. But it does not feel like somebody who is having a deep dive into uh, a policy conversation, nor really thinking about his role as commander in chief. And um, Greg, I mean, not, I'm sorry, not Greg, Bill. Bill, you had surfaced for us an Axios article about a focus group um, among Georgia swing voters. And some of those swing voters, at least, had changed their mind from Donald Trump to Joe Biden in 2020, had supported in Trump in 2016, moved on to Biden in 2020. Those voters in the focus group said they were very relieved that Joe Biden was president this time around because they felt like Biden, in their opinion, um, was much more even handed and a lot less likely to be reactive or personally vindictive in this moment. Yeah. Greg, we're running out of time. We get a quick comment. in. Here. Yeah, no, we've seen polls done since those attacks that show a significant number of voters still have unquestioning support for Israel. But when you get to the kind of cross tabs, you see that younger and more liberal voters tend to show more sympathy towards the Palestinian cause. And that's going to be a unique divide in the Democratic Which, Party. by the way, is one of the reasons we're seeing pro-Palestinian demonstrations breaking out on college campuses around the country, which has caused outrage among the, the, in the Jewish communities in, in those universities, but is likely to continue. Yeah, that won't, that won't stop anytime soon. All right. That's all the time we have for uh, today's Politically Georgia. Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, thank you for, I thought, a wonderful conversation uh, uh, today. Um, Before we leave you, just a reminder that if you have a question you'd like to ask us here on Politically Georgia, you can call the Politically Georgia call-in hotline anytime. Leave your question. We'll play it back and answer right here on the show. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. We really can't wait to hear from you. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. We're now releasing new episodes every weekday. So look for new additions to hit your podcast app sometime around one in the afternoon. All of this is leading up to the October 30th debut of our new Politically Georgia radio show. 
It will air Monday through Friday mornings from 10 to 11 on WABE. Join us again tomorrow for the AJC's Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.